0: The Desire of Ages, Chapter 73 Let not your heart be troubled. Looking upon his disciples with divine love and with the tenderest sympathy, Christ said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Judas had left the upper chamber, and Christ was alone with the eleven. He was about to speak of his approaching separation from them. But before doing this, he pointed to the great object of his mission. It was this that he kept ever before him. It was his joy that all his humiliation and suffering would glorify the Father's name. To this, he first directs the thoughts of his disciples. Then addressing them by the enduring term, little children, he said, Yet a little while, and I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. The disciples could not rejoice when they heard this. Fear fell upon them. They pressed close about the Savior, their Master and Lord, their beloved teacher and friend. He was dearer to them than life. To him, They had looked for help in all their difficulties, for comfort in all their sorrows and disappointments. Now he was to leave them, a lonely, dependent company. Dark were the forebodings that filled their hearts, but the Saviour's words to them were full of hope. He knew that they were to be assailed by the enemy and that Satan's craft is most successful against those who are depressed by difficulties. Therefore he pointed them away from the things which are seen to the things which are not seen. From earthly exile he turned their thoughts to the heavenly home. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know, for your sake I came into the world. I am working in your behalf. When I go away, I shall still work earnestly for you. I came into the world to reveal myself to you, that you might believe. I go to the Father to cooperate with him in your behalf. The object of Christ's departure was the opposite of what the disciples feared. It did not mean a final separation, he was going to prepare a place for them that he might come again and receive them unto himself. While he was building mansions for them, they were to build characters after the divine similitude. Still, the disciples were perplexed. Thomas, always troubled by doubt, said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him, and you have seen him. There are not many ways to heaven. Each one may not choose his own way. Christ says, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by by me. Since the first gospel sermon was preached, when in Eden it was declared that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, Christ had been uplifted as the way, the truth, and the life. He was the way when Adam lived, when Abel presented to God the blood of the slain lamb, representing the blood of the Redeemer. Christ was the way by which patriarchs and prophets were saved. He is the way by which alone we can have access to God. If you had known me, Christ said, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. But not yet did the disciples understand. Lord, show us the Father, exclaimed Philip, and and it sufficeth us. Amazed at his dullness of comprehension, Christ asked with pained surprise. Have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Is it possible that you do not see the Father in the works he does through me? Do you not believe that I came to testify of the Father? How sayest thou then, show us the Father? He that hath seen me hath seen The Father. Christ had not ceased to be God when he became man. Though he had humbled himself to humanity, the Godhead was still his own. Christ alone could represent the Father to humanity, and this representation the disciples had been privileged to behold for over three years. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. Their faith might safely rest on the evidence given in Christ's works, works that no man of himself ever had done or ever could do. Christ's work testified to his divinity. Through him, the Father had been revealed. If the disciples believed this vital connection between the Father and the Son, their faith would not forsake them when they saw Christ's suffering and death to save a perishing world. Christ was seeking to lead them from their low condition of faith to the experience they might receive if they truly realized what he was, God in human flesh. He desired them to see that their faith must lead up to God and be anchored there. How earnestly... And perseveringly, our compassionate Savior sought to prepare his disciples for the storm of temptation that was soon to beat upon them. He would have them hid with him in God. As Christ was speaking these words, the glory of God was shining from his countenance, and all present felt a sacred awe as they listened with rapt attention to his words, their hearts were more decidedly drawn to him, and as they were drawn to Christ in greater love, they were drawn to one another. They felt that heaven was very near, and that the words to which they listened were a message to them from their heavenly Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Christ continued, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, Shall he do also? The Savior was deeply anxious for his disciples to understand for what purpose his divinity was united to humanity. He came to the world to display the glory of God, that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. God was manifested in him, that he might be manifested in them. Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. By this, Christ did not mean that the disciples' work would be of a more exalted character than his, but that it would have greater extent He did not refer merely to miracle working but to all that would take place under the working of the Holy Spirit. After the Lord's ascension, the disciples realized the fulfillment of his promise. The scenes of the crucifixion, resurrection and ascension of Christ were a living reality to them. They saw that the prophecies had been literally fulfilled. They searched the scriptures and accepted their teaching with a faith and assurance unknown before. They knew that the divine teacher was all that he had claimed to be. As they told their experience and exalted the love of God, men's hearts were melted and subdued and multitudes believed on Jesus. The Savior's promise to his disciples is a promise to his church to the end of time. God did not design that His wonderful plan to redeem men should achieve only insignificant results. All who will go to work, trusting not in what they themselves can do, but in what God can do for and through them, will certainly realize the fulfillment of His promise. Greater works than these shall He do, He declares, because I go unto my Father. As yet the disciples were unacquainted with the Savior's unlimited resources and power. He said to them, Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. He explained that the secret of their success would be in asking for strength and grace in his name. He would be present before the Father to make requests for them. The prayer of the humble suppliant he presents as his own desire in that soul's behalf. Every sincere prayer is heard in heaven. It may not be fluently expressed but if the heart is in it, it will ascend to the sanctuary where Jesus ministers and he will present it to the Father without one awkward, stammering word, beautiful and fragrant with the incense of his own perfection. The path of sincerity and integrity is not a path free from obstruction, but in every difficulty we are to see a call to prayer. There is no one living who has any power that he has not received from God, and the source whence it comes is open to the weakest human being. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, said Jesus, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything, In my name, I will do it. In my name, Christ bade his disciples pray. In Christ's name, his followers are to stand before God. Through the value of the sacrifice made for them, they are of value in the Lord's sight. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. For Christ's sake, the Lord pardons those that fear him. He does not see in them the vileness of the sinner. He recognizes in them the likeness of his Son, in whom they believe. The Lord is disappointed when his people place a low estimate upon themselves. He desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. God wanted them else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem them. He has a use for them. And he is well pleased when they make the very highest demands upon him that they may glorify his name. They may expect large things if they have faith in his promises. But to pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. The Savior's promise is given on condition. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. He saves men not in sin, but from sin. And those who love him will show their love by obedience. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ, and if we consent He will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. As Christ lived the law in humanity, so we may do if we will take hold of the strong for strength. But we are not to place the responsibility of our duty upon others and wait for them to tell us what to do. We cannot depend for counsel upon humanity. The Lord will teach us our duty just as willingly as he will teach somebody else. If we come to him in faith, he will speak his mysteries to us personally. Our hearts will often burn within us as one draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. Those who decide to do nothing in any line that would displease God will know after presenting their case before him just what course to pursue. And they will receive not only wisdom, but strength, power for obedience, for service, will be imparted to them. As Christ has promised, whatever was given to Christ, the all things to supply the need of fallen men, was given to him as the head and representative of humanity. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Before offering Himself as the sacrificial victim, Christ sought for the most essential and complete gift to bestow upon His followers, a gift that would bring within their reach the boundless resources of grace. I will pray the Father, He said, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you for ever. even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Before this the Spirit had been in the world, From the very beginning of the work of redemption he had been moving upon men's hearts but while Christ was on earth the disciples had desired no other helper. Not until they were deprived of his presence would they feel their need of the Spirit and then he would come. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof, cumbered with humanity Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was for their interest that he should go to the Father and send the Spirit to be his successor on earth. No one could then have any advantage because of his location or his personal contact with Christ. By the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them than if he had not ascended on high. He that loveth me, Shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus read the future of his disciples. He saw one brought to the scaffold, one to the cross, one to exile among the lonely rocks of the sea, others to persecution and death. He encouraged them with the promise that in every trial he would be with them. That promise has lost none of its force. The Lord knows all about his faithful servants who for his sake are lying in prison or who are banished to lonely islands. He comforts them with his own presence. When for the truth's sake, the believer stands at the bar of unrighteous tribunals, Christ stands by his side. All the reproaches that fall upon him Fall upon Christ. Christ is condemned over again in the person of his disciple. When one is incarcerated in prison walls, Christ ravishes the heart with his love. When one suffers death for his sake, Christ says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore, and have the keys. Of hell and of death. The life that is sacrificed for me is preserved unto eternal glory. At all times and in all places in all sorrows and in all afflictions when the outlook seems dark and the future perplexing and we feel helpless and alone the comforter will be sent in answer to the prayer of faith Circumstances may separate us from every earthly friend, but no circumstance, no distance, can separate us from the heavenly Comforter. Wherever we are, wherever we may go, He is always at our right hand to support, sustain, uphold, and cheer. The disciples still failed to understand Christ's words in their spiritual sense And again he explained his meaning. By the Spirit, he said, he would manifest himself to them. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. No more will you say, I cannot comprehend. No longer will you see through a glass, darkly. You shall be able to comprehend with all saints, what is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. The disciples were to bear witness to the life and work of Christ. Through their word, he was to speak to all the people on the face of the earth. But in the humiliation and death of Christ, they were to suffer great trial and disappointment. That after this experience, their word might be accurate, Jesus promised that the Comforter should bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. "'I have yet many things to say unto you,' he continued, "'but you cannot bear them now. "'Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, "'he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. "'But whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak.'" And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Jesus had opened before his disciples a vast track of truth. But it was most difficult for them to keep his lessons distinct from the traditions and maxims of the scribes and Pharisees. They had been educated to accept the teaching of the rabbis as the voice of God. And it still held a power over their minds and molded their sentiments. Earthly ideals, temporal things, still had a large place in their thoughts. They did not understand the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom, though he had so often explained it to them. Their minds had become confused. They did not comprehend the value of the scriptures Christ presented. Many of his lessons seemed almost lost upon them. Jesus saw that they did not lay hold of the real meaning of his words. He compassionately promised that the Holy Spirit should recall these sayings to their minds, and he had left unsaid many things that could not be comprehended by the disciples. These also would be opened to them by the Spirit. The Spirit was to quicken their understanding that they might have an appreciation of heavenly things. When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, said Jesus, he will guide you into all truth. The Comforter is called the Spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the Spirit of truth and thus he becomes the Comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the Spirit of Truth working through the word of God, that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature, Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Of the Spirit, Jesus said, He shall glorify me. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing his grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The preaching of the word will be of no avail without the continual presence and aid of the Holy Spirit. This is the only effectual teacher of divine truth. Only when the truth is accompanied to the heart by the Spirit will it quicken the conscience or transform the life. One might be able to present the letter of the Word of God. He might be familiar with all its commands and promises. But unless the Holy Spirit sets home the truth, no souls will fall on the rock and be broken. No amount of education, no advantages, however great, can make one a channel of light without the cooperation of the Spirit of God. The sowing of the gospel seed will not be a success unless the seed is quickened into life by the dew of heaven. Before one book of the New Testament was written, before one gospel sermon had been preached after Christ's ascension, the Holy Spirit came upon the praying apostles. Then the testimony of their enemies was... You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Christ has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to his church. And the promise belongs to us as much as the first disciples. But like every other promise, it is given on conditions. There are many who believe and profess to claim the Lord's promise. They talk about Christ and about the Holy Spirit, yet receive no benefit. They do not surrender the soul to be guided and controlled by the divine agencies. We cannot use the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is to use us. Through the Spirit, God works in his people to will and to do of his good pleasure. But many will not submit to this, they want to manage themselves. This is why they do not receive the heavenly gift. Only to those who wait humbly upon God, who watch for his guidance and grace, is the Spirit given. The power of God awaits their demand and reception. The promised blessing, claimed by faith, brings all other blessings in its train. It is given according to the riches of the grace of Christ. And he is ready to supply every soul, according to the capacity to receive. In his discourse to the disciples, Jesus made no mournful allusion to his own sufferings and death. His last legacy to them was a legacy of peace. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Before leaving the upper chamber, the Saviour led his disciples in a song of praise. His voice was heard not in the strains of some mournful lament, but in the joyful notes of the Passover Hallel. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. After the hymn they went out. Through the crowded streets they made their way, passing out of the city gate toward the Mount of Olives. Slowly they proceeded, each busy with his own thoughts. As they began to descend towards the mount, Jesus said in a tone of deepest sadness, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. The disciples listened in sorrow and amazement. They remembered how in the synagogue at Capernaum, when Christ spoke of himself as the bread of life, many had been offended and had turned away from him. But the twelve had not shown themselves unfaithful. Peter, speaking for his brethren, had then declared his loyalty to Christ, Then the Savior had said, Have not I chosen you twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. In the upper chamber, Jesus said that one of the twelve would betray him, and that Peter would deny him. But now his words include them all. Now Peter's voice is heard vehemently protesting, Although all shall be offended, yet will I not? In the upper chamber he had declared, I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus had warned him that he would that very night deny his Savior. Now Christ repeats the warning, Verily I say unto thee, That this day, even this night, Before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. But Peter only spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they are. In their self-confidence, they denied the repeated statement of him who knew. They were unprepared for the test. When temptation should overtake them, they would understand their own weakness. When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and to death, he meant it, every word of it but he did not know himself. Hidden in his heart were elements of evil that circumstances would fan into life. Unless he was made conscious of his danger, these would prove his eternal ruin. The Savior saw in him a self-love and assurance that would overbear even his love for Christ. Much of infirmity, of unmortified sin, carelessness of spirit, unsanctified temper, heedlessness in entering into temptation had been revealed in his experience. Christ's solemn warning was a call to heart searching. Peter needed to distrust himself and to have a deeper faith in Christ. Had he, in humility, received the warning, he would have appealed to the shepherd of the flock to keep his sheep. When on the Sea of Galilee he was about to sink, he cried, Lord, save me! Then the hand of Christ was outstretched to grasp his hand. So now, if he had cried to Jesus, Save me from myself, he would have been kept. But Peter felt that he was distrusted and he thought it cruel. He was already offended, and he became more persistent in his self-confidence. Jesus looks with compassion on his disciples. He cannot save them from the trial, but he does not leave them comfortless. He assures them that he is to break the fetters of the tomb, and his love for them will not fail. After I am risen again, he says, I will go before you into Galilee. Before the denial, they have the assurance of forgiveness. After his death and resurrection, they knew that they were forgiven and were dear to the heart of Christ. Jesus and the disciples were on the way to Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount Olivet, a retired place which he had often visited for meditation and prayer. The Savior had been explaining to his disciples his mission to the world and the spiritual relation to him which they were to sustain. Now he illustrates the lesson. The moon is shining bright and reveals to him a flourishing grapevine. Drawing the attention of the disciples to it, he employs it as a symbol. I am the true vine, he says. Instead of choosing the graceful palm, the lofty cedar, or the strong oak, Jesus takes the vine with its clinging tendrils to represent himself. The palm tree, the cedar, and the oak stand alone, They require no support. But the vine entwines about the trellis and thus climbs heavenward. So Christ in his humanity was dependent upon divine power. I can of mine own self do nothing, he declared. I am the true vine. The Jews had always regarded the vine as the most noble of plants and a type of all that was powerful, excellent and fruitful. Israel had been represented as a vine which God had planted in the promised land. The Jews based their hope of salvation on the fact of their connection with Israel. But Jesus says, I am the real vine. Think not that through a connection with Israel, you may become partakers of the life of God and inheritors of his promise. Through me alone is spiritual life received. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. On the hills of Palestine, our heavenly father had planted this goodly vine, and he himself was the husbandman. Many were attracted by the beauty of this vine and declared its heavenly origin, but to the leaders in Israel, it appeared as a root out of a dry ground, They took the plant, and bruised it, and trampled it under their unholy feet. Their thought was to destroy it forever. But the heavenly husband never lost sight of his plant. After men thought they had killed it, he took it, and replanted it on the other side of the wall. The vine stock was to be no longer visible. It was hidden from the rude assaults of men. But the branches of the vine hung over the wall. They were to represent the vine. Through them, grafts might still be united to the vine. From them, fruit has been obtained. There has been a harvest which the passers-by have plucked. I am the vine. Ye are the branches, Christ said to his disciples. Though he was about to be removed from them, their spiritual union with him was to be unchanged. The connection of the branch with the vine, he said, represents the relation you are to sustain to me. The sycon is engrafted into the living vine, and fiber by fiber, vein by vein, it grows into the vine stock. The life of the vine becomes the life of the branch. So the soul, dead in trespasses and sins, receives life through connection with Christ. By faith in him as a personal saviour, the union is formed. The sinner unites his weakness to Christ's strength, his emptiness to Christ's fullness, his frailty to Christ's enduring might then he has the mind of Christ. The humanity of Christ has touched our humanity and our humanity has touched divinity. Thus, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, man becomes a partaker of the divine nature. He is accepted in the Beloved. This union with Christ once formed must be maintained. Christ said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. This is no casual touch, no off and on connection. The branch becomes a part of the living vine, the communication of life. Strength and fruitfulness from the root to the branches is unobstructed and constant. Separated from the vine, the branch cannot live. No more, said Jesus, can you live apart from me. The life you have received from me can be preserved only by continual communion. Without me, you cannot overcome one sin or resist one temptation. Abide in me and I in you. Abiding in Christ means a constant receiving of his spirit, a life of unreserved surrender to his service. The channel of communication must be open continually between man and his God as the vine branch constantly draws the sap from the living vine. So we are to cling to Jesus and receive From him, by faith, the strength and perfection of his own character, the root, sends its nourishment through the branch to the outermost twig. So Christ communicates the current of spiritual strength to every believer. So long as the soul is united to Christ, there is no danger that it will wither or decay. The life of the vine will be manifest in fragrant fruit on the branches. He that abideth in me, said Jesus, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. When we live by faith on the Son of God, the fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. Not one will be missing. My Father is the husbandman. every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away. While the graft is outwardly united with the vine, there may be no vital connection. Then there will be no growth or fruitfulness. So there may be an apparent connection with Christ without a real union with him by faith. A profession of religion places men in the church, but the character and conduct show whether they are in connection with Christ. If they bear no fruit, they are false branches, Their separation from Christ involves a ruin as complete as that represented by the dead branch. If a man abide not in me, said Christ, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, pruneth it, that it may bring forth more fruit, From the chosen twelve who had followed Jesus, one as a withered branch was about to be taken away, the rest were to pass under the pruning knife of bitter trial. Jesus with solemn tenderness explained the purpose of the husbandman. The pruning will cause pain, but it is the Father who applies the knife. He works with no wanton hand or indifferent heart. There are branches trailing upon the ground. These must be cut loose from the earthly supports to which their tendrils are fastening. They are to reach heavenward and find their support in God. The excessive foliage that draws away the life current from the fruit must be pruned off. The overgrowth must be cut out to give room for the healing beams of the Son of Righteousness. The husbandman prunes away the harmful growth that the fruit may be richer and more abundant. Herein is my Father glorified, said Jesus, that ye bear much fruit. God desires to manifest through you the holiness, the benevolence, the compassion of his own character. Yet the Savior does not bid the disciples labor to bear fruit. He tells them to abide in him. If ye abide in me, he says, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. It is through the word that Christ abides in his followers. This is the same vital union that is represented by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The words of Christ are spirit and life. Receiving them, you receive the life of the vine. You live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The life of Christ in you produces the same fruits as in him. Living in Christ, adhering to Christ, supported by Christ, drawing nourishment from Christ... You bear fruit after the similitude of Christ. In this last meeting with his disciples, the great desire which Christ expressed for them was that they might love one another as he had loved them. Again and again he spoke of this. These things I command you, he said repeatedly, that ye love one another. His very first injunction, when alone with them in the upper chamber, was, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. To the disciples this commandment was new, for they had not loved one another as Christ had loved them. He saw that new ideas and impulses must control them, that new principles must be practiced by them. Through his life and death, they were to receive a new conception of his love. The command to love one another had a new meaning in the light of his self-sacrifice. The whole work of grace is one continual service of love, of self-denying, self-sacrificing effort. During every hour of Christ's sojourn upon the earth, The love of God was flowing from him in irrepressible streams. All who are imbued with his spirit will love as he loved. The very principle that actuated Christ will actuate them in all their dealing with one another. This love is the evidence of their discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, if you have love one to another. When men are bound together, not by force or self-interest but by love they show the working of an influence that is above every human influence where this oneness exists it is evidence that the image of god is being restored in humanity that a new principle of life has been implanted It shows that there is power in the divine nature to withstand the supernatural agencies of evil and that the grace of God subdues the selfishness inherent in the natural heart. This love manifested in the church will surely stir the wrath of Satan. Christ did not mark out for his disciples an easy path. If the world hate you, he said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. The gospel is to be carried forward by aggressive warfare in the midst of opposition, peril, loss, and suffering. But those who do this work are only following in their master's steps, As the world's Redeemer, Christ was constantly confronted with apparent failure. He, the messenger of mercy to our world, seemed to do little of the work he longed to do in uplifting and saving. Satanic influences were constantly working to oppose his way, but he would not be discouraged. Through the prophecy of Isaiah, he declares, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. Though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. It is to Christ that the promise is given. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth. Thus saith the Lord, I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritage that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat of the sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Upon this word Jesus rested, and he gave Satan no advantage. When the last steps of Christ's humiliation were to be taken, when the deepest sorrow was closing upon his soul, He said to his disciples, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. The prince of this world is judged. Now shall he be cast out. With prophetic eye, Christ traced the scenes to take place in his last great conflict. He knew that when he should exclaim, It is finished. All heaven would triumph. His ear caught the distant music and the shouts of victory in the heavenly courts. He knew that the knell of Satan's empire would then be sounded and the name of Christ would be heralded from world to world throughout the universe. Christ rejoiced that he could do more for his followers than they could ask or think. He spoke with assurance Knowing that an almighty decree had been given before the world was made, he knew that truth, armed with the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, would conquer in the contest with evil, and that the blood-stained banner would wave triumphantly over his followers. He knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted, victories, not seem to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. These things I have spoken unto you, he said, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world." Christ did not fail, neither was he discouraged, and his followers are to manifest a faith of the same enduring nature. They are to live as he lived and work as he worked, because they depend on him as the great master worker. Courage, energy, and perseverance they must possess. Though apparent impossibilities obstruct their way, by his grace they are to go Forward, Instead of deploring difficulties, they are called upon to surmount them. They are to despair of nothing and to hope for everything. With the golden chain of his matchless love, Christ has bound them to the throne of God. It is his purpose that the highest influence in the universe, emanating from the source of all power shall be theirs. They are to have power to resist evil, power that neither earth nor death nor hell can master, power that will enable them to overcome as Christ overcame. Christ designs that heaven's order, heaven's plan of government, heaven's divine harmony shall be represented in his church on earth. Thus in his people he is glorified. Through them, the sun of righteousness will shine in undimmed luster to the world. Christ has given to his church ample facilities that he may receive a large revenue of glory from his redeemed, purchased possession. He has bestowed upon his people capabilities and blessings that they may represent his own sufficiency. The church endowed with the righteousness of Christ is his depository in which the riches of his mercy his grace and his love are to appear in full and final display Christ looks upon his people in their purity and perfection as the reward of his humiliation and the supplement of his glory Christ the great center from whom radiates all glory. With strong, hopeful words, the Savior ended his instruction. Then he poured out the burden of his soul in prayer for his disciples. Lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Christ had finished the work that was given him to do, He had glorified God on the earth. He had manifested the Father's name. He had gathered out those who were to continue his work among men. And he said, I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one, as we are one. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Me. Thus, in the language of one who has divine authority, Christ gives his elect church into the Father's arms. As a consecrated high priest, he intercedes for his people. As a faithful shepherd, he gathers his flock under the shadow of the Almighty. In the strong and sure refuge, For him there waits the last battle with Satan, and he goes forth to meet it.